Hello, my name is Tyler Lyle, and you have stumbled into the secret lair. This is episode 13 and the start of year two. I'm calling this episode POTS, or the unsung virtue of just showing up. A success is anyone who is doing deliberately a predetermined job because that's what he decided to do deliberately. Going for a run would be the best thing to do. But you get fixated on the fact that there's ice cream in the fridge or that running makes your legs hurt. New goals, new aspirations, new ways to be really upset with yourself as soon as February starts. Today, as we're thinking about New Year's resolutions, I want to make a case for why ambition is overrated and repetition is underrated. This is a very important concept as a professional musician to get. Um, But even if you have all of the minutes of your day scheduled or every workday is different, I think small, thoughtful routines are what make the difference between a good day and a bad day. About 10 years ago, a musician who I looked up to was doing me a favor and co-writing a song with me. Whatever we wrote is long gone, but on a lunch break, he casually said the phrase, sometimes you just gotta make more pots. I had no idea what he was talking about. He seemed incredulous and said, you don't know about the pots? It's funny now because in my 10 years since of doing music professionally and hanging out with creative types, not one person has ever brought up the pots, but that's all right. Today, I would like to tell you the story of the pots. It goes like this. Scientists wanted to study the relationship between quality and quantity. So they had two test groups. Both groups were told that they would spend the day making clay pots. The first group was told to make the most beautiful pots that they could without bothering to pay attention to how many pots they ended up making. And the second group was told to make as many pots as they possibly could without bothering to pay attention to how the pots looked. No one in this experiment had uh, experience making pots, but everyone was given a basic tutorial and the two groups spent the day making pots. At the end of the day, The first group, the group told to make the most beautiful pots that they could, had nearly 20 nice-looking pots. They had fulfilled their task, and they went home. The second group, told to make as many pots as they could, ended the day with 300 pots. The quality of their first 20 pots or so was kind of rough, but by the 50th pot, they had seemed to have gotten the hang of it. By the 100th pot, however, they were making surprisingly elegant pottery, far uh, more beautiful than the 20 beautiful pots that the first group made that day. So the second group went home that day having made over 200 pots that beat the first groups in terms of quality, even though they never considered trying to make them beautiful. Repetition had made them beautiful. The moral of the story is to make more pots, and that is the pot story that I heard once a decade ago, and it stuck with me. My observation is that repetition and ambition tend to be at odds. This observation is based on my experience. Ambition, it seems, tends to overestimate and underperform, whereas repetition underestimates, and in the long run, I think overperforms. 
I've been very ambitious in my past. Uh, I've waited for outside events to happen that were out of my control, and they simply did not happen. The tree bore no fruit as I waited through summer holding a basket. Just over a year ago in November of 2015, I'd finished a long six months of being on the road. The tour ended in Los Angeles, and after the show, my manager, who by the way was my third manager and my first semi-famous one, asked me to grab a private glass of whiskey with him. His question was, Tyler, why didn't you sell any records? In retrospect, my answer should have been, you tell me, semi-famous manager, this is partly your responsibility too. But my answer then was something along the lines of, well, I crowdsourced the record, so it pre-sold a lot of copies that didn't count as sales, and it had hundreds of thousands of plays on streaming services, which, while good for visibility, isn't lucrative uh, in these days uh, since, you know, the music industry died. And then he said that he couldn't work with me anymore, and the next day, my booking agent with a well-known booking agency left me a message about how he couldn't be my booking agent anymore. And then... The last of November 2015, I was alone. I had had a manager, a lawyer, a booking agent, a publishing company with people and resources, a publicist, a producer, a backing band. I'd had this great big team with connections, and it vanished in the span of a week. Why? Honestly, because I'd overspent on a record trying to please everyone and myself, too. This, the secret layer, is a different kind of ambition. I started this project a year ago to see if a couple hundred fans would be willing to float me $3 a month, and in exchange, I would spend eight hours a day, five days a week, working on my craft. Ambition might have been what got me into this mess, but it was repetition that has saved me. There's a false sense of confidence that comes with having a big team. See, the songs that I released on my last record the native genius of desert plants, I really believed in, and I still do. But I recognize that there is a lower ceiling to the kind of audience that I can have with my folk songs than with pop music. If I were more ambitious and less in love with what I do every day, I would be a full-time pop writer in L.A. or Nashville. The problem is, is that I tried it. I give myself a C plus. There are kids that are far better equipped for that sort of life. So, 2016 was a year for making pots. I needed to learn the skill of music production so that I could produce myself. I got a year of that. It's still not enough. I need to learn more. In 2015, I spent a lot of time on conference calls uh, with publicists talking about strategy. Um, But I needed to spend more time writing songs and reading books and getting down to the things that I was best at. And after a year of this, I can say that I am truly shocked. Uh, We had over 200 subscribers to The Secret Lair. I got to buy some equipment like audio plugins and a bass guitar. Over 14 hours of content was created. 50 original songs were written. In Matthew Kelly's book, The Long View, he has this quote. Most people overestimate what they can do in a day and underestimate what they can do in a month. We overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can accomplish in a decade. My case study and repetition last year has convinced me that this is true. I went in thinking that it was about motivation and self-discipline and self-control, and it's not. 
Honestly, it was the shame of advertising something that I was selling and the fear of not following through on it. There was no more discipline to it other than fearing that I wouldn't keep my promise to you. It's the same reason that my apartment is messy now, but it will be clean by the time my wife gets home from work. It's why some days it was impossible for me to get out of bed, uh, but the episodes always made it out on time. The secret was not self-discipline. It was a combination of my high level of narcissism in announcing something that I wasn't sure I could deliver on and my sense of shame and fear that I might not deliver. So while I don't put much stock in creating your destiny or whatever the gurus call it, I believe wholeheartedly in making a plan, announcing it, and then showing up. And I don't mean showing up prepared either. I don't mean showing up with self-control or self-discipline or with your pants on. I mean just showing up, the smallest action repeated day in and day out. Haruki Murakami, the author, talks about how his long-distance running and his writing habits both center around the idea of the flywheel. In his book about both, um, called What I Talk About When I Talk About Running, He writes, right now, I'm aiming at increasing the distance I run, so speed is less of an issue. As long as I can run a certain distance, that's all I care about. Sometimes I run fast when I feel like it, but if I increase the pace, I shorten the amount of time I run, the point being to let the exhilaration I feel at the end of each run carry over to the next day. This is the same tack I find necessary when writing a novel. I stop every day right after the point where I feel I can write no more. Do that, and the next day's work goes surprisingly smoothly. I think Ernest Hemingway did something like that. To keep going, you have to keep up the rhythm. This is the important thing for the long-term projects. Once you set the pace, the rest will follow. The problem is getting the flywheel to spin at the set speed. And to get to that point takes as much concentration and effort as you can manage. Now, the flywheel is a wheel in a machine that is used to increase a machine's momentum and give greater stability or reserve of available power. These are on trains and potter's wheels and stationary rowing machines. Um, This is Murakami's preferred metaphor to think about both exercise and riding. The momentum of the flywheel is the point, and it's the generator and maintainer of his creative environment. At a certain point, it would take more effort to stop his daily routines than continue them, and in that lies the flywheel's power. Going to the gym, learning a language, writing songs, these are all subject to the flywheel thought. So now if you're following along, we have the story of the pots and the metaphor of the flywheel. I went in search of some hard science to help shed light on why repetition works so well. I went digging in neurology and psychiatry and agriculture, um, and I found three things from three different sources that I was not expecting. Number one, the basal ganglia. Charles Duhigg, in his book, The Power of Habit, describes how habits work on a neurological level. We all decided something for the first time whether that was to eat Himalayan food or to try our first beer or drive a car. Um, With repeated actions, though, it becomes a habit. Uh, 
And there is a huge difference between what happens to your brain when you back a car out of the driveway for the first time at 16 and when you've been doing it for years at 35. The creation of habits are chemical. See, the cerebral cortex is something like computer memory. New experiences take a lot of concentration, and they use our analytic problem-solving parts of our brain. When you drive a car for the first time, this part of your brain is decoding millions of lines of code. It doesn't know what to do. It doesn't feel natural. Um, it's trying to compute. Same thing when you perform on stage or first start to learn a new language or an instrument. Your brain needs this higher level of concentration. When driving or performing or speaking French or playing the trumpet become repeated over time, especially over weeks and months and years, the brain begins to move this function from the cortex to the basal ganglia, which is a small piece of neural tissue under the cerebral cortex. The brain does this to save processing power. At 16, when you're in the car, you shouldn't be fiddling with the radio or talking to friends because the task of driving requires all of your full attention. Ten years later, your trip home from work will be on autopilot, the entire process taking place in the basal ganglia without you even registering it sometimes. You'll forget to grab the milk because the pattern is so habituated in your brain. Another interesting thought is that often the task you're performing is done better as a repeated habit. Think like a violin solo or a jump shot or a long putt um, because it's a habit. It's coming from the basal ganglia. It's muscle memory. It's autopilot and not a consciously analytical step. Otherwise, uh, like when I play drums, you overthink it and you lose the flow of it. Thus, the pots. The more pots you make, the better pots you're going to get. The less you have to think about it, the more natural it becomes, the prettier the pots are. Science number two, peer pressure. So then I read this study um, in the American Psychological Association Journal from 2012. And it tried to test how desire and self-control work together in a small group of people. They measured desire and self-control by giving subjects a BlackBerry and randomly checking in on them throughout the day to measure uh, if they felt tempted to do something um, or like if they felt in control of their desires. And the scientists found that the presence of enactment models, which is psychology talk for other people in the environment already doing the behavior, uh, was the strongest predictor of whether or not the subject would give into temptation or not. Essentially, the more you are tempted, the more you will fail. Um, the more your circumstance puts you at odds with the habits that you want, the harder you will have to push and the more you will fail. You've heard the truism that you are the mean of your five closest friends in terms of temperament, interests, income. If these five friends are all exercising, eating healthy, abstaining from smoking and risky sexual behavior and drug use, you're probably pretty healthy and you're probably going to live longer than if your friends indulge in riskier behavior. I remember in eighth grade during a sex ed class at my little country junior high school, the teacher asked the class why we'd all chosen to abstain from sex. No one answered for a long time, so I waited and looked around and raised my hand and said, lack of opportunity. The teacher was quiet for a while and then asked me to see her after class.
But uh, I meant it genuinely. You're no saint if you've never been tempted. And it's not temptation if it's not in the realm of possibility, right? So the scientists concluded that essentially if the cookie is already in front of you, then the cookies have won. Uh, We are far worse at self-control than we think. Uh, And the less time that we spend being tempted, the more self-control we seem to have. Put it another way, if you want to make pots, surround yourself with people who are making pots, and specifically the kind of pots that you want to make. I picked up a book a couple weeks ago called Deep Work by Cal Newport. Um, And he actually references this study. This was after I'd read the initial study, so it felt uh, it felt right, you know. So in writing about this study, he says in his book, you have a finite amount of willpower that becomes depleted as you use it. Your will, in other words, is not a manifestation of your character that you can deploy without limit. It's instead like a muscle that tires. This is why the subjects in the Hoffman and Bachmeister study had such a hard time fighting desires. Over time, these distractions drained their finite pool of willpower until they could no longer resist. The same will happen to you regardless of your intentions unless you're smart about your habits. Okay, science point number three. Actually, this is more of an anti-science point, but water flows downstream. There was a Japanese farmer named Manisoba Fukuoka. He died in 2008. But he developed this strategy that he calls natural farming. You don't weed and you don't till. You don't use herbicides or insecticides. Fukuoka said you just scatter seeds and they grow. He says that the seeds will grow best where they grow best. Uh, This obviously bothered soil scientists and agriculture specialists. Um, And they would go to his farm to essentially argue with him Uh, about what he was doing wrong and uh, got very frustrated that he was growing the best crops in the region. He says that the secret is that nature knows what it's doing way better than we do. He says it's best to scatter some seeds on a healthy field and then take a nap or write a song. Growing white clover and spreading straw over the ground didn't prevent weeds from growing, so he just ignored the weeds. They were manageable. Uh, And they harmlessly grew up with the vegetables, and after harvest, more seeds were sown, and the decomposing plants and weeds became their own fertilizer. Nature knows what it's doing. It really doesn't need our interference. He writes, If you use your head to decide where these plants should go, you will be limiting nature's expression. If you start with scientific trials, it will take you a very long time to decide what to do and you will still make mistakes. But if you toss all the seeds together all at once, in just one year you will know exactly where the best place is for the daikon, the mustard, the cucumber, the burdock, or whatever. You don't have to worry about pH, drainage, sunlight, shade, or even the proper planting time. The seeds already know all of that. Nature wants to work with us. If only we give it the chance by getting out of its way. So he also makes a case that... um, In the same way that soil naturally finds the seeds that it wants, the body was designed to naturally find what it wants. In terms of food, more specifically, um, I found out that the term for feast in Japanese means to run around. Um, Basically, in old times, this meant um, running around the the garden and the field and eating the plants that your stomach was hungry for. 
I just ran into uh, an interesting website. It's called Habit, and it claims to do this for you, right? So it claims to analyze your biology and figure out exactly the nutrients you need and tell you. So um, as weird as it sounds, uh, you know, that'll be the next fad diet. But he also means it in sort of a more general way in that we should find what we need in terms of our interests, our vocation, our people. There is a way that things are, and there is a way that we are. These are not accidents. Some bodies thrive without meat, and some need it in their diet. Some like manual work, and some like sitting at a desk. Some like cherry pie, some like apple pie. Plant the seeds where you already see them growing. Develop habits that make you happy, not the ones that you think will make you happy. Nature has a plan and a specific design that you are part of. So, from uh, Manasoba Fukuoka, we learn to make the kind of pots that we want to make um, that will make us happy. So, this is all helpful. Um, the first point, according to the neurologist, your brain needs to routinize life to make it livable. Brain architecture reflects that. And then, according to the psychiatrist, it's easier to stick to good habits and avoid bad habits when you have reinforcement in terms of other people and good external checks in play rather than if you're just trying to self-discipline yourself on your own. You don't have as much of it as you think you do. And finally, the farmer in Japan who says to let the garden direct what it wants to grow in you. The wisdom to know what habits are fruitful and which habits aren't. That is wisdom. Uh, so my wife and I asked our nephew over Christmas break what his New Year's resolutions were, and he looked back at us like we were idiots. Those are things adults have to do, not me. Of course, he doesn't have the extra 10 pounds nagging him to stay in shape or the family history of heart disease to eat healthier or to save more money. I care so much about my habits because it's nearly impossible to make a living making music, especially in 2017. It's insane to even really try, and it would be tough for me to recommend uh, somebody who is just beginning their journey to put all their hopes and dreams in making a living from making music, um, sad as it may be. But I'm too far in. Uh, I've been doing this for 10 years, and my only way to stay on top of it is to write the songs and to send the emails and to do the work. The shortcut is the work, and repetition makes the work possible. If I can read out of Deep Work again, Cal Newport writes about this. The key to developing a deep work habit is to move beyond good intentions and add routines and rituals to your work life designed to minimize the amount of your limited willpower necessary to transition into and maintain a state of unbroken concentration. If you suddenly decide, for example, in the middle of a distracted afternoon spent web browsing to switch your attention to a cognitively demanding task, you'll draw heavily from your finite willpower to wrest your attention away from the online shininess. Such attempts will therefore frequently fail. On the other hand, if you deployed smart routines and rituals, perhaps a set time and a quiet location used for your deep tasks each afternoon, you'd require much less willpower to start and to keep going. In the long run, you'd therefore succeed with these deeper efforts far more often. I have that thing that everyone wants or says they want. Eight free hours every workday. But really, it's a curse if you don't know how to box yourself in and lean on a Catholic school strict routine. I would be donezo without repetition. But I know that if I don't order it for myself, then some 22-year-old A&R know-nothing will. 
And that's why I wake up every day and meditate, send emails and balance my checkbook and brainstorm and organize this month's episode for a few hours. At lunch, I write my daily pages. I take a break to go to the gym or to sit and learn my French or read or take a 20-minute nap if I need one. And then uh, I write songs for three hours uh, every day. Then I clean up, cook dinner, and my wife comes home. There is a freedom in this regimented isolation, and it's not for everyone, but it suits me very well. In fact, it's, for whatever reason, been my most successful year in music thus far, and the midnight is in talks over a record contract, and it seems for now, at least, that I get to continue to struggle to live the dream. I can't control anything that happens in my career, truly, but I can control the hours that I sit in the chair and work. It is not sexy, but hopefully it's what will allow me to do this in 20 years from now when the really good songs start to pop out. Or maybe I'll be a fine investment banker by then. Nah. Whatever your New Year's resolutions, thank you for being a part of mine. Sincerely, thank you. Um, The secret layer will continue because of you. Uh, The songs in the podcast will continue. There will be new features that I'll start unveiling within the month. Water carves out stone drip by drip, and if I have any wisdom, it is that minimal effort applied frequently works way better than trying to move the world off of its axis whenever you feel the need to start a new project. We only have so much energy after all, but it's enough if we know how to use it. Don't give it all you got, give it a little bit. On dry days, that will be a challenge. On good days, Leave some effort on the table unrealized. You can start there the next day. The goal is for the work to be enjoyed, not for the mountains to be moved overnight. That's for your circumstances to figure out which are bigger than you. That's my super inspiring message to kick off the new year. Keep your head down. Uh, If you fill out the survey that I'm sending some of you guys, uh, then I'll release a small collection of live recordings from the fall. That's it. You guys are awesome. Thanks for joining. Make more pots. Happy New Year. I choose my eyes wide open and my heart half broken every time Over the gilded golden shackle, the reassuring sentimental lie I've seen the rolling meadows and the cruelest ghettos in this town But the song that sounds the best to me Is the chorus of the maple trees And now the river bends into the sea Its course is fixed and so are we It seems But I got sunshine Sunshine
Digger when I'm gone Forget that I was here 